And so what I want to do this evening is just sort of give an introduction and a brief overview of this, not really this chapter much, but more so the concept of oaths and vows. And then my plan is, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, to just cover the rest of the chapter and be done with it in, in two, two, uh, two lectures. In, in all transparency, I don't think that my mind is fruitful enough at this point on this subject to go much further than that. I actually had originally thought, I'm just going to plow through this whole thing in, in, at one time. Uh, but I do, I do want to at least try to introduce uh, the idea, because I think it might be a strange concept to some of us. So just trying to think of the confession as a whole, we're working our way through what we might consider to be the more practical applications of the doctrines that were set forth in the earlier chapters. Uh, Chapters 21 through 30, we've been calling God-centered living. So this is basically what it looks like to be a a member of the covenant community of God and live in this world in, in, in several different categories. And... Also remember that God-centered living began in chapter 21 with Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. It began, or God-centered living began with the liberty of the Christian to obey God freely from the heart without being bound by any of the dictates of man. Remember that during the time of the construction of our confession, Christian liberty and the doctrine of liberty of conscience was a very important topic to our Baptist forefathers, and it still is very important to Christians uh, all around the world, and we've, we've even seen that in recent months and over the past year, that we need to have a good and clear understanding of what it means to be uh, free in our consciences from the dictates of men when it comes to our practice as Christians. So right out of the gate of that chapter on Christian liberty, chapter 21, then we went straight into a chapter on worship and the Sabbath day, religious worship. And in making the connection between those two chapters, we said that chapter 22, religious worship in the Sabbath day, was effectively the statement regarding the liberty of the Christian to worship God in the way that He has commanded. That's how that that connection is made. We are free. We are at liberty. Liberty to do what? Liberty to do anything that we please? No. We are first and foremost at liberty to worship God. God in the way that He's commanded, free from the commandments of men. And we said in that chapter that worship at its essence is creatures responding to their Creator in the way that is demanded of them by who He is. And in that sense, worship is the most free exercise that a human can engage in. And in that sense, worship is natural. It's what we were made to do. We were created to return back to God all of the various responses that would be drawn out of a creature when they come to know their Creator. That, that, that chapter on worship began this way. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore, so you see how it describes God, and then it says, because He is that way, therefore, He is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the mind. That's worship. 
is to recognize the God of the Bible as He has revealed Himself to us, and then, because of who He is, the only rational response would be that we fear Him, that we love Him, that we praise Him, that we call upon Him, that we trust Him, that we serve Him with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. It is, it, to, to boil it down, it is to treat God as God. That's what it means to worship. And any refusal to worship God in these ways is to un-God God. It's to treat Him like He's not God. Worship is treating Him as He is, as a creature ought to treat their Creator. Worship then is simply the free-flowing response of a Spirit-filled saint in direct correlation with and response to the specifics of who God is. His attributes revealed to us in His Word call forth from our hearts and our minds and our bodies certain responses. And when we respond rightly, we're worshiping. There's a direct correlation between who He is and then what we do because of that. In that sense, we could say that all of life at, at some point has the potential to be an act of worship in some way. Now, one of the parts of worship that was mentioned was prayer. And there were two paragraphs. Now I'm just trying to get this, get this in your mind. There are two paragraphs on prayer. Now why is prayer worship? Because prayer looks to God as God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is protector. He is provider. He is refuge. He is strength. He is salvation. He is sovereign. So we look to Him and then we call upon Him to act with regard to those specific traits of His. That's what prayer is. And I don't think any of us would argue prayer is an act of worship. Now, we might find it odd that we have an entire chapter on worship. And in that chapter, we've got two whole paragraphs on prayer. Two paragraphs on religious worship and, and the Sabbath day in particular. And then we have things like reading the Scriptures, preaching, singing. Those things are just listed. We might think, I want a whole chapter on preaching. I want, a, I want at least a whole paragraph on the reading of the Scriptures, but no, they're just listed. Preaching, reading, hearing, singing. And then we come to chapter 23, and we have an entire chapter devoted to lawful oaths and vows. The chapter that is in our confession that most people forget's in there. Because we don't, we don't understand the concept. Why would there be so much an entire chapter, five paragraphs, devoted to lawful oaths and vows, when we only got two paragraphs on prayer, only two paragraphs on the Sabbath, just a bare mention of preaching and reading and hearing and singing, that seems out of balance. We might get to this point and say, this is a little, a little strange. Well, what I want you to see tonight is that there is an important reason for this focus on lawful oaths and vows in our confession. First, we'll consider the historical context and then we'll lead into oaths and vows as worship because these are parts of worship. This would actually be directly connected with what we just saw in the previous paragraph. So first, or the previous chapter. So first, the historical context. Remember that our confession and its parents, the Westminster Confession of Faith 
and the Savoy Declaration all came about in what we would consider turbulent historical times. First, there was the Protestant Reformation and its effects, would have, which would have been several generations before our confession came about and, and the, the Westminster and the Savoy. But the Protestant Reformation still sort of set this ball rolling that began to manifest a very clear dissension from the Church of Rome. A, a clear break from the Church of Rome. And then following that, there come the times of the Puritans and the Separatists, which would, would have been a lot closer to the, the production of our confession. They were separating themselves or trying to purify the Church of England. The Separatists said, we're not purifying anything, we're getting out. But then within that context, there was an even more particular, no pun intended, Reformation that was taking place among the Separatists, which led to what we know as the Baptists, or the particular Baptists. And so in this chapter of our Confession, which also appears in Westminster, it also appears in in the Savoy Declaration in some form, the Puritans and the Separatists, the, the Reformed, were attempting to clarify biblical doctrine in the face of Rome and in the face of other Protestant groups, specifically the Anabaptists. And that's why this is so important. Now, what, what was Rome's view on oaths and vows? There, there's a, a broad spectrum here, but of, of the many distinctions, one of them I think is, is just historically intriguing. Of the many distinctions that we see in our confession between ourselves and Rome, one of the things that, that is, is pertinent is that Rome believed that if a Christian made an oath to what they consider to be a a heretic or an infidel, then you didn't have to keep it. You could break that oath. Now, we might think, well, you know, that doesn't seem like that that, that big of a deal, but there there was a significant historical event brought about by this belief. Um, Some of you have probably heard of a name of a man called John Huss or Jan Huss. His last name means goose. You've probably heard people say things like the goose... Uh, has been cooked, or think that he was burned at the stake. A well-known uh, martyr of the faith. He was a, a pre-Luther reformer. Prior to Martin Luther, Luther sort of, uh, we could say, took the torch of the Reformation and lifted it up a lot higher. But even prior to Luther, there were men who were already laying the groundwork for a Reformation. And John Huss was one of those men. John Huss was well-known and, and, and uh, very outspoken against the many heresies of Rome. In 1414, the king of Hungary arranged for a meeting of magistrates and clergymen to come together to eradicate heresy from the Western church. And John Huss was invited to this meeting as a clergyman, even though it was very well known that he was an opponent of the church of Rome. He was a dissenter. He was very outspoken. He protested Rome and all of their their heresies. So he was invited. And the emperor of Hungary made an oath to him. He said, if you come, I'll make sure that you're safe. Nothing's going to happen to you. We just want you to be a part of this meeting. While attending this gathering, some other men who were not so uh, keen on Huss heard that he might be attempting to flee the city, and so they arrested him. Well, the emperor of Hungary who made this oath began to actually legitimately and sincerely feel bad that he had made this oath and 
Now it looked like it was being broken. He was being mistreated. And so he wanted to act in order to keep his oath and get him out of imprisonment. Those of the church of Rome who had imprisoned Huss came to him and assured him, don't trouble yourself. You don't have to keep an oath if it's made to a heretic or an infidel. And this man is that. And on July 6th, 1415, Huss was condemned to death before the council. He was burned at the stake. Now that, that seems like a, a little disagreement. Well, they just believe you don't have to keep an oath. Well, it led to the death of men uh, who were Christian martyrs. Uh, we would consider brothers, Protestants, who were protesting Rome. Now, as we'll see, the Church of Rome also allowed for vows of things like poverty. They required the priests to make vows of celibacy. And we'll see that later. But that was, that, that's just an evidence of some of the, the, the things that were happening in the church of Rome that needed to be uh, uh, set right by the truth and by Scripture. The Reformed and the Puritans and the Separatists all put forth great effort in distinguishing themselves from Rome. But when the Baptists came along, there was another group for whom it was, or from whom it was very important for them to distinguish themselves, and that was the Anabaptists. Uh, the Presbyterian Reformed and the Congregationalists, they, they all wanted to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists. But for the Baptists, the, the particular Baptists, it was especially important because these are the only two groups who are believing in an a, a adult believer's baptism. And so some might see the particular Baptists baptizing adults and say, oh, these are a part of the Anabaptists, assuming that they're a part of the same Group And we've talked about that before. The Anabaptists, some of the Anabaptists, were very violent. And they were despised not just by Christians, but by the society as a whole. And so it was very important for the particular Baptists to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists as well as from Rome. Listen to this. This is from the Schleitheim Confession of 1527, which was an Anabaptist confession of faith. It has a total of seven articles of faith. Seven. One of those seven. Now just think about this. You're writing a, writing a confession of faith. You want to keep it short. Let's keep it seven articles. Okay, what do we want to put in there? We've only got seven articles. How about one on the vow? They had one entire article on the vow or the oath. And the first paragraph reads in this way. This is the Anabaptist confession. It says, The oath is a confirmation among those who are quarreling or making promises. In the law, it is commanded to be performed in God's name, but only in truth, not falsely. Christ, who teaches the perfection of the law, prohibits all swearing to His followers, whether true or false, neither by heaven nor by earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor by your head, and that for the reason He shortly thereafter gives, for you are not able to make one hair white or black. So you see, it is for this reason that all swearing is forbidden. We, can't, we cannot fulfill that which we promise when we swear, for we cannot change even the least thing on us. And they go on. So the, the Anabaptists did not believe in taking any oaths or any vows of any kind under any circumstance based on that superficial understanding of Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mount. So then here is this historical context in which this paragraph comes about. The Reformed and especially the Baptists are trying to distinguish biblical truth from the errors of Rome and the errors of the Anabaptists. And that's why we have this chapter. That's the historical 
context. So now then, oaths and vows as worship. This is another reason why we have a whole chapter. Because, notice how this paragraph begins, a lawful oath is a part of religious worship. Now our forefathers believed that lawful oaths and vows were a part of worship. And they held worship to be the highest privilege of men. They held worship to be an area in which no erroneous teaching or any dictate of man ought to encroach. Worship was the most important thing for these churches. And so if you consider lawful oaths and vows as a part of worship, then why not include a chapter on this particular part of worship? To ensure that worship was conducted according to Christian liberty and liberty of conscience... They included this entire chapter on the subject of lawful oaths and vows. And so now the question becomes, how are oaths and vows a part of worship? To answer that, we have to answer this question, what in the world are lawful oaths and vows? So that's what I want to answer first. What are oaths and vows? Now notice how the first paragraph begins. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein... We'll stop right there. Just want to point out. In the first paragraph, lawful oaths are defined. So if you want to have a definition, there it is. Now look at the fifth paragraph. A vow, which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone... We'll stop right there. Just notice. Paragraph 5 addresses the vow. Paragraph 5, in discussing the vow, assumes a lot of the things that are said about oaths without restating them. But just notice, paragraphs 1 through 4 are specifically about the oath. Paragraph 5 is about the vow, or a vow. So, what is an oath? What is a vow? First, an oath. Paragraph 1 again. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calleth God to witness what he sweareth and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. That is an oath. Now notice in an oath, the person swearing the oath calls God to witness. Therefore, God is not a party in the oath. God is a witness to the oath. What is a vow? Well, it's very similar to the oath except, but paragraph 5, a vow which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone. See the difference? A vow is made to God. Now, we could say in a sense that God is still witness to the vow, but a vow could be made to God without the knowledge of any other human being. An oath is made between people. God is witness. A vow is made to God. Maybe there are no witnesses except God. As for an oath, it says that the person making the oath swears in truth, righteousness, and judgment and solemnly calls God to witness what he swears and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. So, in an oath, a person is swearing to some truth to another person, 
And in the swearing of it, he calls God to be the witness whether or not he's being truthful. As for a vow, a vow is to be made to God alone. This is paragraph 5 again. And is to be made and, notice that word, performed. Performed with all religious care and faithfulness. So in making a vow, which is directly to God, something is to be performed. You've got to do something. That's a vow. So to make a vow is to solemnly commit yourself to perform some duty in light of or in order to some act of God. Now, what I want to do is read some definitions from a couple other men. I think it's three. Three or four. And what I want you to do is, is ho- or what I'm hoping to do here is hopefully just hearing several different men add definitions will help sort of fill this out. Um, maybe one of them will make sense. Maybe the conglomeration of all of them together will help that light bulb to, to sort of come on and you'll have a proper understanding of oaths and vows. Uh, one defines an oath as sol- a solemn promise made before God but to men, while a vow is a som- solemn promise made to the Lord. Notice the difference. One is to men, one is to God. A. A. Hodge, he says, of a lawful oath, he says, a lawful oath consists in calling upon God to witness the truth of what we affirm as true or our voluntary assumption of an obligation to do something in the future with an implied imprecation of God's disfavor if we lie or prove unfaithful to our engagement. So again, notice, we're calling God to witness. I've said something or I said I'm going to do something and I'm calling God to witness assuming, there it says, with an implied imprecation, assuming that if I'm lying or if I don't do what I promise, what I promise I'm going to do, that God will be displeased and God will be the judge toward me. That would be an oath. Between people, God is witness. Of a vow, he says, and here I've just sort of taken a lot of his words and tried to put them together. A vow is... Of the like nature with a promissory oath, an oath where you promise to do something. It is of like nature with a promissory oath made to God alone, voluntarily, out of faith and conscience of duty, in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want. So you tell God, I'm going to do this. Why? Number one, to get what you want. Or two, to thank Him for what He did. Now we'll see that in the Scriptures in a minute. But that was A.A. Hodge. Sam Waldron, a little newer. He says, the purpose of an oath is confirmation. In other words, we call God to confirm the truth. The purpose of a vow is commitment. I I vow or I'm committing myself to some action. Uh, Robert Gonzalez uh, wrote an article uh, on this chapter. He says, quote, an oath refers to a promise made in God's presence to another human party whereas a vow refers to a promise made directly to God. And then he goes on to list many examples in the Scriptures of oaths and vows. And so that's what I want to look at now. I just want to read some of these. There's there's a lot, and I don't expect you to turn to all of them. But the first one is found in in the law of God itself. Exodus 22, 10 11. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, so you're going out of town, this guy, he's going to the beach, he's got to have somebody to take care of his chickens and watch his goats for him while he goes to the beach, feed his dogs. He says, I'm going to to bring these over to your house, I want you to watch over them while I'm gone. That's the situation. He says, and and it dies, 
or is injured or is driven away. So he comes back from the beach. Hey, I'm here to pick up my goat. Look, man, uh, we woke up the other day and, and uh, it was gone. Your dog, we, we, we were going to feed it and it's just dead. Whatever. That's, that's what's happened here. It's died or it's injured, it's driven away and nobody's seen it without anyone seeing it. An oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. In other words, the, the, the law of God required that the caretaker, the one who was supposed to be watching the animals, swear an oath to the owner of the animals with God as witness, I didn't take your goat. I didn't take your dog. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. With God as my witness, it was out of my hands. And in bringing God as witness, the owner of the animals was supposed to say, I hear your oath, and I'll take it as truth, and I will not require any restitution. You did what you could, and the matter is out of our hands. Now, now how could he do that? Well, they've just called God to witness. They've brought God into the matter, and that was a very serious thing for the people of God to call in God as witness to an oath like this. In 1 Samuel 19, 6, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So notice here, Saul is making an oath to Jonathan that he will not kill David. And the oath, he says, as the Lord lives. In other words, as sure as the life of God Himself, David will not die. He shall not be put to death. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 15, David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, this is an Egyptian speaking now. He said, Swear to me, my God, that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you to this band. So the Egyptian here is making David swear an oath that he wouldn't kill him, that he wouldn't return him to his master. Now, if you read the very next verse, it implies David agreed to the oath and swore because he took him down. The oath was between the Egyptian and David, between two people. That's the point. Nehemiah 13, 25, he says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. The oath, again, is being made between these men and Nehemiah. We need to, have, we need to come to an agreement that you're not going to be, continue intermarrying between those who are outside of the covenant people of God. And it was in the name of God. I made them take an oath in the name of God. We're calling God Himself to witness to this oath. Genesis 31.50 If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Here, Laban is requiring uh, Jacob to, to take an oath between them two with God as witness that he wouldn't take anything except what belonged to him. Between people, God is witness. 1 Samuel 12.5 He said to them, The Lord is witness against you, to, against you and His anointed is witness this day. But you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. That is, God is witness. So here, there is an oath being made between Samuel and the people. And the, the agreement is essentially that Samuel had not defrauded the people in any way in all of his ministry with God as witness. And the people confirmed it. He is witness. God would testify to the truth of what you're saying. Ruth 1.17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is saying to Naomi, I will not leave you. Now that would have been a very simple statement. Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be with you. But in order to add weight to that statement, she says, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if I don't keep my word. In other words, she's bringing God into the, to, to be a witness to this word with the implied imprecation that if she does not keep the word, God will bring judgment upon her. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Again, this is an oath between the apostle and the saints in Corinth. And that his intentions were pure. It was to spare you. I, I didn't have any, any ill intent in, in not coming. But he calls God to witness. In other words, he could have just said, look, hey, I didn't mean anything by it. But he wanted them to realize he was being very sincere in his words. Very honest. And so he says, I call God to witness. Now they knew the apostle. And they knew the apostle's God. And they said, if that apostle calls that God to witness, he means what he's saying. He didn't have any ill intent. He, it was to spare them. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now the oath is simply between the apostle and the saints of Philippi that he did truly yearn for them. He could have just said, Man, I really miss you guys. I really want to see you. But again, he wants to prove his earnestness in the statement. And so he calls God to witness. God is my witness. He's saying, I swear with God as witness against me if I'm lying. And God knows my heart that I yearned to be with you. I yearned for you all. Those are oaths. Between people, God is witness. Vows, remember, are not to men. Vows are to God. In Genesis 28, verses 20 to 22, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, notice, notice the, the if then, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that, I, all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob here is praying. He wants God to be with him, to keep him, to feed him, to clothe him, to bring him back to his father's house. And he says, if you do this, I in return, he vows that God will be his God, that his house will be established, and that he would give a tithe to the Lord. If you do this, I will do this. That was the vow. We often, what comes to our minds most often is probably Jephthah in Judges 11 because we have headings in some of our Bibles and it says Jephthah's tragic vow. Judges 11, 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord saying, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Notice the parts. Jephthah desires the Lord to act. He's asking God to do something. And he says, God, if you do this, then I vow to do this in return. He will respond with an act. 
We, we've seen in 1 Samuel how, how Hannah made a vow to the Lord. In 1 Samuel 1 verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Notice again those two parts. She desires God to do something, and she says, if you do this, I will respond with this. I'll do this. That's a vow. And in verses later on, after Samuel is born, she says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. Why? Because she vowed. She made a vow. She kept it. She paid her vow. God granted her request, and so she performed what she vowed. In all of these, we can see that the person making the vow is uh, requesting, asking God for something that, that seems to be pretty, pretty big. It's, it's, a, it's an important request. It m- might be even sort of out of the ordinary. We're, we're really expecting God to do something uh, quite amazing. And then they bind themselves to perform a vow if God would do what they're asking. Now there are other places where we see that God is just being God. He simply acts. And then a vow is paid or performed as an act of thankfulness and praise to God. In other words, prior to God acting, no vow was made. But then they they looked at something God did and they said, you know what, just because of that, I'm going to do this. Just sort of um, out of the blue, we could say. Sort of a, a spontaneous willingness to do something to show your appreciation to God. Psalm 22, 25 From you comes my praise and the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. That's a public thing. Psalm 50, 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 116, 14 to 19. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. This again is a public act. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. These are just acts of praise. We see in the book of Acts that Paul took at least one vow, although it's not really clear what what was going on? Acts 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. With him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And that's all we got. We're, we're, we're kind of wondering what, what's going on. But it might have been something like this. Paul might have prayed something like, Lord, I've, I've got some travels coming up. I need to get to here. And if you'll get me to there, then, then I'll, I'll keep this vow. I, I won't cut my hair until it's done. Or perhaps he prayed, Lord, I so strongly trust in your faithfulness to accomplish this particular thing that I'm not going to cut my hair until you do it. I know you're going to do it. Now, we might think that's not that big of a deal. But remember, the Scriptures tell us that it was, is shameful for a man to have long hair, especially a, a, a 
former Pharisee, this that wouldn't have been his normal due to not cut his hair. So it represented something of a public reproach upon him as he as he went about his ministry and his hair is just getting shaggy and people are wondering, when is Paul going to cut his hair? Because he's looking pretty rough. But he just keeps going. He knows in his mind, I've made a vow. And then afterwards, he would have been walking around with a freshly shaven head, which we all know what that looks like, glowing everywhere he goes. But what is that? That's a testimony. God did something. That man made a vow and he kept it. And now it's a testimony to all who would see that God has accomplished and proven Himself faithful. So... Again, oaths are to men with God as witness. And a vow is something that you vow to God. I need you to do this, and if you do this, I'll do this. Or, because you've done this, I'm going to do this. Those are vows or oaths and vows. Now the question is, how is an oath or a vow a part of worship? This is much more brief. What is it that makes these verbal transactions an act of worship? The answer is because they seek to render to God the honor due to Him and Him alone by calling upon Him to do what He alone can do. Or to quote Hodge again, an oath or a vow, we could say, is an act of supreme religious worship since it recognizes the omnipresence, omniscience, absolute justice and sovereignty of the person whose august witness is invoked and whose judgment is appealed to as final. He says it is a supreme act of worship. Why? Because it recognizes omnipresence. To, to, to swear an oath or to make a vow is to recognize that all of God is in all places at all times. And if I make an oath or a vow, God is immediately present to be a witness to that, no matter where I am. It's an act of worship because it recognizes God's omniscience, that He knows everything perfectly, fully. And so God knows, if I break my promise, if I break my oath, if I break my vow, God knows it. God knows that I did that. It's an act of worship because it recognizes absolute justice that God deals in strict moral righteousness and can do no other. If an oath or vow is broken, God alone can deal out perfect justice in that circumstance because He alone is the perfect judge. It wouldn't make any sense to, to, to call in a witness to an oath that is blind and deaf and He's known for being a habitual liar. What weight does that carry? Zero. But here we've got a guy, a God who is omnipresent. All of Him is in all places at once. He knows everything. He can only deal in absolute justice. And He's absolutely sovereign. He reigns supreme over all things. And He has the authority to mete out real, perfect justice in the case of all oaths and vows. In other words, they seek to render to God the honor due to Him and Him alone by calling upon Him to do what only He can do. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is omniscient. Only God can render absolute justice. Only God is absolutely sovereign. So He's the only one that could be called to witness these types of things. So these types of things are simply treating God as God. If I'm going to make an oath and have any expectation that the other party is going to take me seriously in my oath, then I must bring as witness the only one who can actually function as a proper witness to such an oath, which is God. 
In other words, oaths and vows are acts of worship because they treat God as God. They call upon Him to do that which He alone can do. They call upon God to see all, to know all, to hear all, to render perfect justice in every circumstance without wavering. They treat God as God. Therefore, they are acts of worship. And this is why to swear an oath or a vow to anyone or anything besides God is forbidden in Scripture because it either purposefully or inadvertently ascribes the attributes of God to something besides God, which is blasphemy. So then in conclusion, have you ever sworn an oath? If you've been in the military, you have. You've sworn an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's an oath. If you're married, you've sworn an oath. Now, nowadays it's popular for people to write their own vows, right? And you probably notice that most of the time when people write their own vows, it's like a snippet out of a love letter, and they conveniently leave out that part that says, So help me God. Because that's the part that makes it a binding oath before God. I don't think they do that on purpose, but that just is an irony. And it, we might ask, is it any wonder then that marriage vows are taken less seriously than they used to be? Because people don't understand they're making a vow and an oath before God. But if you're married, you've taken an oath. Have you ever had to testify in court? Then you've probably had to say something to the effect of, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Now, if you're an atheist, you, have the, you now have the liberty to, to provide an affirmation where you don't have to put your hand on the Bible or say, so help me God. You can just affirm that you'll tell the truth. The irony is, why in the world would an atheist tell the truth? Why do they care? What's, what's the truth to them? And, and historically, it was not allowed for infidels or pagans to testify in court. We can't trust them to tell the truth. But if you've ever had to do that, you've sworn an oath. Are you a member of this church? If so, you've signed a covenant which reads, We do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Now why would we say in the presence of God? Because this is an oath made to the rest of the congregation with God as witness that you will perform the things promised in the church covenant. Most of us have sworn oaths. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a large part of, of uh, being a truth-telling person. Again, for a lost person, this, this doesn't mean anything. But for a believer to take the name of God upon their lips to testify to what they've said, that, that's serious. Supreme act of worship. For the people of God, an oath is the way that we show that we love the truth and that we are willing to call God to witness our words and that we have every intention of fulfilling the things that we say. Richard Phillips says this chapter is a summons to be a truth-telling, truth-loving people. We serve a God of truth who sees all, who knows all, who's sovereign over all. He's perfectly just in all of His acts. And if we belong to Him, then we ought to mimic some of these attributes in our dealings with people. We ought to love the truth. We ought to, to be just in our dealings. When we say something, we ought to mean what we say. And if we want to bind ourselves to something and say, so help me God, people ought to know when that man or woman takes the name of God upon their lips, they mean it. This chapter is an overflow of the third commandment. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This is, this is an application of, of that commandment. So let's thank this God for His blessing upon us and then we'll, we'll stand and sing together.